I love a good mystery, and so does everyone else. In fact, everyone loves a good family mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's Journey. I know that our listeners will absolutely love this game because you are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder, and you're becoming a detective. You're looking for clues, and each scene will lead you to a new thrilling storyline. This is a great way to engage your observation skills to uncover key pieces of information that lead you on to many chapters of mystery, danger, and romance. Right now, I'm in the process of interviewing family members, and this is bringing me back, just so you know, to my days in law enforcement, and I'm having such a blast with it because it is so much more lighthearted, but it also has the mystery of where will this take me? You can even chat and play with or against other players by joining a detective club. You'll even get the chance to play in a detective league to put your skills to the test. Megan, I think we should join a detective club together. We've got this. (laughs) Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. June needs your help, detective. Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. This podcast may contain content that is graphic and disturbing in nature. Listener discretion is advised. Convicted of murder twice, this young woman suddenly found herself as a tabloid headline during Italy's highly sensationalized trial of the century. She spent four years in prison prior to being fully exonerated by the Italian Supreme Court. Today, she is an advocate for criminal justice reform and the wrongfully accused. This is the Amanda Knox interview. Megan, why are you looking so tan? Because I went to San Diego and finally got a little sunshine on my face and in my life. Yay. How was your trip? It was wonderful. You know, James' family is all out there. So we got to spend some nice quality time with them, enjoy a little sun and just relax. And, you know, it's a great way to round out the break. You're very lucky. I was in Disney World, but we'll talk about that another time. Oh, my gosh. That does (laughs) not sound nearly as fun. But okay. Sorry. On a more serious note. Yes. Either way, it is great to see you back. This is a little bit of a treat because we have a bonus episode here today. Yes, and a very special interview. I learned so much. And things that I just didn't know before. So I really hope the audience enjoys this special treat. Thank you to Amy for arranging this interview. And Amy, you actually know Amanda, correct? Um, I've met Amanda before. I'm sure she meets hundreds of people. So I'm sure to her, I was just another person. But she really left a mark on me. Her and her mother were both just such kind people. And they had been through so much. I was sitting at their table at the Innocence Network conference that I go to every year. You know, it's a gathering of people who have been wrongfully convicted of crimes, advocates, lawyers, educators. And I felt very fortunate to be at a table with them because I had followed her case and always believed in her innocence. We're really grateful that Amanda took the time to speak with us and to inform our audience on some really important topics. And if you haven't listened to our previous episode on Meredith Kircher, please go back and give a listen as it will put this interview more into context. All right. Thanks, Amy. Okay, great. So I hope you all enjoyed this interview as much as we did. 
So I, I'm very, very interested when I hear you talk about Rudy with compassion and not anger. Hmm. I find that so interesting because I think especially now that Rudy has been released and he has still not, you know, spoken the truth, which would really vindicate you and Raphael. Raphaeli, I always say Raphaeli, yeah. Okay, Raphael, oh, Raleigh. Okay, oh, yeah, yeah. I can't say that. Okay, um, <laughs> it's okay. You're not the only person who's said his name in a weird way. He- <laughs> okay, yeah. <laughs> so I would love to hear you talk a little bit about how somebody who has done such awful things to not only Meredith but to yourself and your family and really society in general. How are you able to still speak of him in compassion with compassion? Um, That's a really good question. Um, And first off, I should acknowledge the fact that I am super angry at him. Um, It's just like I'm super angry at the police and prosecutors who uh, pursued a case against me, regardless of the fact that there was no evidence against me. Um, So, you know, I do experience anger (laughs) towards those individuals, but that's not the predominant feeling that I feel, nor is it the most important feeling that I feel. Um, And the reason I say that is, um, first of all, because I, while my life has been so tremendously personally been impacted by their actions, um, how they basically stripped me of my identity and my freedom and and my future. Um, They were not people who I knew. Like, the you know, for the a lot of bad things happen to good people for no reason. And sometimes those bad things happen to good people from people that they actually love. Like your parents are abusing you or your partner is abusing you or whoever it is. And I was fortunate enough that like the greatest abuse that I've ever experienced in my life at the very least was at the hands of strangers, people that I was not already personally invested in. So I do feel gratitude for that because I understand that the burden of being like having like the worst experience of your life be at the hands of someone you love is even worse. Um, And then the the other part of it is because there's almost that sort of like emotional distance between me and the perpetrators of this terrible experience that I went through, um, I I almost am able to I mean, what I what I really genuinely ultimately always wanted to understand when I was sitting there in my prison cell waiting to be recognized as innocent the thing that plagued me and continued to haunt me was the question, why? Why is this happening to me? Why do these people think, like, first of all, why was Meredith raped and murdered? And two, why am I being accused of something that I clearly did not do? Why? What is going on in the minds of these people? And, you know, putting, I think it's it's easier to, to understand my prosecutor in the sense that like here's a person who is in a position of power who is um, very much incentivized by this the media and and everything that was going on around Perugia um, to solve the crime as quickly as possible and to do so without admitting any fault on the part of the authorities like that I that I understand like that I can I can put myself in his mindset and think here's how his own cognitive biases prevented him from 
first recognizing the truth and then doing the right thing with that information. When it comes to Rudy Gaudet, it's more difficult um, because, like, I I very, very honestly can't imagine what it feels like to be in the position where you have someone vulnerable in front of you and you violate them in such a like such a raw, visceral and like ultimate way um, to end their life like that. I just I don't even know what that possibly feels like. So it's more difficult for me to understand his mindset. However, I can understand based upon having heard about his life prior to committing this crime, how he was basically a young man who was spiraling out of control. He grew up sort of adrift. He was sort of kind of raised by a family in Perugia that was not his family, but then they sort of disowned him. And then he went on a burglary spree where he was just kind of you know, breaking into people's homes, stealing money, doing petty theft, but also carrying a knife. And just that sort of escalated and escalated until it resulted in him breaking into my house. And I think he probably broke in before Meredith arrived home that night. And then she came home to find him there. And then he attacked her. Um, That's what I think happened. Um, And I so I can understand how a young man who felt adrift, who was not, who was impulsive, who wasn't like, did not really have the resources or the support or the even just like the the societal tethers that you would need in order to be a responsible person and feel like you have a role in society. Like I do feel like when young men are adrift, that is when they are the most dangerous. Um, And so I don't know, like, again, the why question for me becomes important because ultimately what you want to do whenever these kinds of horrible tragedies happen is you want to learn how to prevent them from happening again. And so when I think about Rudy Gaudet, I think about how do I prevent the next Rudy Gaudet? How does society prevent the next Rudy Gaudet? How does he go onto a path that doesn't involve him raping and murdering somebody and then falsely accusing someone who happens the media happens to focus on instead of him like he he was opportunistic and impulsive and violent and he continues to be opportunistic to this day um and you know it, that's a disappointment but also how does society incentivize different behavior And do you think that perspective you have came out of the fact that you were able to make relationships while you were incarcerated and you were able to see past the worst thing people ever did and Mm -hmm. to see the humanity in them? And along with that, I would love to know if I would imagine this is so, but the women, the women that you met in prison were most of them victims, you know, because we know there's that big link between victims and offenders. So Mm -hmm. did all of that kind of mold you into this kind of compassionate person you are? Or was that already there? <laughs> um, I mean, I think that what be what living alongside people who had committed crimes for, you know, I was living alongside these people for many years, some who had committed, you know, many sort of petty crimes, some who had committed like one really, really terrible crime. Um, living alongside them 
really opened my eyes to the humanity of those individuals. Like at the end of the day, they wake up and read the newspaper and and try to exercise or whatever, just like we all do. They all have feelings. They all care about their loved ones. There are very, very few truly psychopathic people out, you know, out there. Um, So a lot of times what I saw was that here were women who were raised in vastly different circumstances than me, um, impoverished backgrounds, um, women who had been victims of crime before they ever committed a crime, um, people who didn't have a lot of good choices in, it didn't have a lot of good opportunities, and yet also were constantly made aware of all of the things they didn't have, the sort of luxuries of life that a lot of us take for granted. And that, to me, put into context their behavior. Um, It didn't excuse their behavior, of course, but it absolutely put it into a broader context, which our society uh, doesn't really, and our legal system to a certain extent, doesn't really acknowledge that like when people commit crimes, oftentimes they're doing it because they think it's the best thing that they can do at that given moment. And it may not be a good thing, but it's the best thing that they can do. And that's mm-hmm. that is a horrible realization to realize that like a crime was for a person in a given moment, the best thing that they could choose. And that is that's a shocking revelation to someone who grew up in like middle class, safe, you know, suburban neighborhood who had all the opportunity in the world. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, that's actually a nice segue. I could be mistaken, but it seems that prisons in Italy are a bit more humane. So I'm curious if you would agree with that assessment. And if so, is there anything you would take from your prison experience that can help us as far as prison reform. And I guess along with that would be anything, I know there's our system and their system similar in some ways, different in some ways, but I'm wondering if there's anything that we actually do better here um, than they do there. Yeah, that's a great question. So just like in the United States where like there are some, there are better prisons than others. um, Also in Italy, there are better prisons than others. I think I was probably in, if I compare to some of the stories that I've heard from other inmates when I was in Italy, um, we were in one of the better prisons in the sense that like there was a window in every cell. Um, and But like one of the things that I think is a major difference that's like so fundamental to the humanity of the prisoner is we were not given numbers. We were still, we were still talked to by name. So I was always uh, Knox. <laughs> like they didn't know how to pronounce Knox, but I was always Knox. And so I never became, you know, inmate number blah, 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 blah. And that's something that is deeply, deeply dehumanizing that we do here in the United States that is not replicated abroad. I think the other issue is um, it's just uh, length of prison sentences um, is is just the difference is extraordinary. Like you would never hear in Italy someone being sentenced to 150 years of prison. Like that's just nonsensical. And here you you hear about that all the time. So I think that prison sentences are more um, 
realistic to the idea of rehabilitation and are not um, are not meant to be sort of statements about the gravity of the crime and are instead meant are thought to be because like a, a sentence like 150 years doesn't even make sense in the context of a human life. So like there's no you might as well say you sentence them to life in prison, but we say 150 years because we want to like really nail them for how bad the crime was, you know. So like I think that that symbolic gesture of like the length of a prison sentence is less acknowledged in in Europe in, at, at large. Um, I do know that in many of the prisons here in the U.S., but again, not a lot, not all of them, there are opportunities to learn um, skills like trades even like you can become a welder in prison and there was never that opportunity in my prison Um, and I don't know how widely available um, career programs are in Italy despite the fact that we you know they have uh, shorter sentences I don't I, I know that there were some, you know, very basic things that you could do that were part of the prison function, like, oh, you could work in the kitchen or you could work in the laundry. But it was never something where it was like, here's a new trade that you can learn while you're in prison that you can take and use on the outside. That's slightly counterintuitive. You would think that you based would on think, how punitive yeah. <laughs> we are, we, would, we actually do a decent job. else about when you were incarcerated, um, you were allowed to wear your own clothes. Is that correct? That's absolutely right. Another one of those like humanizing things. Granted, there were lots of limitations. Like there were some, you know, you weren't allowed to wear gloves that had fingers on. You had to cut the fingers off. But like it was not the prison jumpsuit. It wasn't the inmate number. You were still mm-hmm. your own person. You could have your own fashion sense. Yeah. And <laughs> I know. think that I think that's important for people to have their you know sense of self. And the last thing I'm going to because I could talk about this all day, but the bathroom situation, you mm. had privacy for your uh, bathroom and shower. Is that correct? Well, ish in the sense that um, it wasn't like a big room where everyone just showered in the open, like every cell had its own shower. Um, now, granted, it was viewable from the hallway by a little window that the agent, like the, the agente, the guard, could open and close to check in on you. But it wasn't like you were, you know, walking in single file into a, a big hall and you were all stripped naked and had to take a shower together. Like, no, I, I could take a shower on my own. Thank you very much. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and sorry. And so the same with the toilet. Is the toilet out in the open the way our toilets are in the U.S. in the cells? Like oh, out no, there? that's another good um, observation. So, again, it depends on the prison. I get my prison was one of the newer ones. And so there was a kind of um, partial the the way that the cell was structured was there was this, you know, the, the main part of the cell where your bunk was and, and all of that. And then there was a wall and behind that wall was the shower and the um and the toilet and the sink and all of that. So you you could go behind a wall and have a sense of privacy, even if it you know, your your room, your cellmate could walk in and do whatever. But like, you know, if you wanted to, you could have privacy. And it might seem like silly that I'm harping on that, but I think that's so important to just give people that little bit of humanity. Yeah, it's to dignity. To just give them privacy. Dignity. Yeah. Absol- you're absolutely correct. Yeah. 
so we find it interesting that black males in your case seem to have fared better than a white middle class female. So this seems a little counterintuitive because as our listeners know, as I know that you both know, is our system is extremely racist here in the U.S. How did you did you see race playing a factor in what went on in your case? Yeah. So the interesting thing about um, the racial element in this case was um, there wasn't to say that there wasn't a racial prejudice um, in against Rudy even. So Rudy Gaudet was constantly referred to as Livoriano. So the the man from the Ivory Coast, despite the fact that he had been, you know, sure, he had been born in the Ivory Coast. He had like his, you know, genetic roots there, but he had been raised in Perugia. He was an Italian guy. Like he had lived there since he was six years old. He was Italian. He just happened to be a black Italian. And yet... Uh, there was this sense of like, we don't own him. Like it like there was this sort of like Italy sort of rejected him as being an Italian citizen. And they were like, oh, he's the Ivoriano. Um, in this case, the evidence against him was so clear and obvious that the prosecution wasn't incentivized at all to focus on him or to um, like, like they didn't have to work to prove his guilt, right? Like his DNA was everywhere. He had, you know, fled the country. Like he, it was very obvious that he had committed this crime. And so when the prosecution was constructing their case and they had already focused their lens on me, the problem of Rudy Gaudet was that he, the, the evidence against him was so clear and the evidence against me was not. <laughs> and so they sort of had to downplay his guilt in order to make it like to make a case for my guilt alongside his. Um, and I think that the way that it worked out in terms of the broader sort of social recognition of this case is People like the racism that came into play here was people think, oh, a black guy breaks into someone's house and kills someone. We've heard that story a million times. I don't need to hear that story again. It's not interesting. What I want to hear is the story of a young white woman who rapes and murders her roommate. And I don't really care what the evidence is. That story is so interesting to me and so new and compelling and, and exotic and rare that I'm willing to ignore and forget the actual killer and all the evidence against him in order to sort of sustain this other narrative. So almost like the thirst for the drama, like trumped the the need, you know, the need for us to always blame, you know, the minority person yeah. in the story. Yeah. Yeah. Because <laughs> that's boring. It's, it's like we do yeah. it all the time. We can I, do that with some other case. <laughs> that's such a, it's such an interesting way to think about it. I hadn't thought of it like that. But the media circus was unbelievable in your case. It was almost as if those people involved were famous, you know, political figures or movie stars. Clearly, it's, you know, it shocked the public conscious, right? Everyone into like this panic, like, oh, my God, this woman, you know, if she could be a monster, mm -hmm. then who else among us are the monsters? And sure. this whole idea, and I guess it violated social norms. And, you know, I'd love for you to talk a little bit more about what was it about this case that I like when I saw the documentary, I was shocked at what because I knew the media attention here and it was a lot, but it wasn't so different. Than other big stories, the media attention in Italy was unbelievable. 
Yeah. And and to this day, I mean, it's it's interesting the kind of messages that I get from people who um, from Italy who are just like we're still talking about your case here in Italy and like people are still really heated about it. Um, so. I was not actually not around. Like, I think I was still in prison when Jody Arias and Casey Anthony were on trial here in the U.S. So I never actually really got to see what was happening in those cases. My understanding is that Jody Arias murdered her boyfriend. Is that correctly? And Casey Anthony was accused but ultimately acquitted of murdering her daughter. Right. Mm-hmm. OK. So once again, we're looking at cases of like young women accused of of murder, which is such a whom, rare, sorry, whom of which? No, no. I just want to say, whom of which are attractive middle class white women? Yes. So. so that sort of like that, I that girl next door who secretly is a murderer. That idea seems to really captivate people. Was very popular. Um, I think that, and I, if, correct me if I'm mistaken. There was also a sexualization element to it, where like both, like there was a lot of um, emphasis in the Jody Arias trial on what their sex life was like, and whether or not that was a motive for the murder. Maybe if if that's correct, I'm I'm not entirely sure. And then of course, like people were looking at like Casey Anthony's behavior afterwards, and whether or not she was mourning the way that a, a mother would mourn the loss of her child, and or whether she was being a party girl. I, I see that same sort of discussion happening um, with my own case i think that there are similarities in the in the sense that what was ultimately on trial in my case i feel was female sexuality like there was that idea that like meredith was meredith was portrayed as this pure reserved serious girl who only took life seriously and only had very serious boyfriends and never was casual or didn't you know didn't go around having fun with people no 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 she was a very serious good girl and then on the other flip side of that was me the uninhibited you know lustful and therefore violent young woman and so the i like the way that i was portrayed as like even just uh, I remember my um, my prosecutor using the word adulteress to describe me. And it's like, what? Like, even if I were an adulteress, d- that doesn't make me a murderer. Like, why do you why are you equating female sexuality with female violence? Like where where's that connection being made? And yet that was a connection that was sort of intuited in people's minds or like that sort of trigger was released like the the prosecution was always sort of pushing that button that sort of irrational button in people's minds that equated lust with violence um and potentially because like it's expected for men to be lustful and for men to express violence and so if for a woman by definition she's supposed to be unviolent and also unlustful chaste and so if you are a lustful woman you are therefore capable of murder and i i did feel like um that was not just implicitly stated but explicitly stated as a part of the case against me at trial that i was the type of girl who would commit you know evil for the sake of evil as my first prosecutor said 
there's a good kind of girl and a bad kind of girl, and Amanda is the epitome of one, and Meredith is the epitome of the other, and this is what happens when you put two uh, such girls in a room together. One of them is going to kill the other one. Do you think your affect would have been viewed differently here? And when I say your affect, I mean, you know, the way you portrayed yourself after the murder of your roommate, the media in Italy saw you as, you know, not empathetic at all. And they saw that as a sign of guilt. Do you think that would have been the same had it happened here? Um, you know, I'm, I'm not sure. I do know that and I, I had this revelation. A li- I don't even know exactly when I had this revelation, but I think um, I was actually telling somebody about this earlier. Someone asked me, like, when do you think like it started going really wrong? Like, when do you think people really started to think there was something different about you? And a thought occurred to me, which is that when we were all- when me and Philomena and Raffaele and Philomena's boyfriend and and their friends. We were all at the house together with the cops trying to figure out what was going on. And the cops broke down the door to Meredith's bedroom and discovered the crime scene. The difference between Philomena and me was that Philomena saw into Meredith's room. She saw all the blood. She saw the horrific crime scene. And she had a visceral, immediate a highly emotionally charged reaction. And I, who did not see into Meredith's bedroom, did not. And I think that very likely from that moment when she, when Philomena is crying hysterically and I'm sitting there going, wait, what's going on? What's going on? What's going on? And trying to figure and being confused and not hysterically crying, people started to notice the difference. Here are two roommates. Both of them were Meredith's roommate. One of them is acting very differently than the other. I think that was the moment that people started to consider that maybe I was not innocent like Philomena was. I was not reacting like a girl is supposed to react. But I think people fail to remember that I did not have the same inputs that Philomena did. And so it took me longer to process and even understand what actually happened to Meredith. Um, And so, you know, when viewed through the lens of like, if someone decides that you are acting weird, like just from an initial moment like that, Philomena's hysterically crying, I'm not, and they go, what's up with that one who's not crying? Then you have a kind of, you do establish a, a sort of lens through which you view that person's behavior. And now, if you decided to suspect me, you are going to be looking for reasons to suspect me, and you're not going to, and you know, you're going to disregard anything that doesn't look suspicious. So I think that I was kind of doomed from the start because I didn't see Meredith's body the way that Philomena did. Yep. Confirmation bias at its finest. <laughs> yeah. I know you. We, were th- we talk about it all the time. I know we were both thinking the same exact thing. So I'm switching gears a little bit, but I am so interested in how you feel about women's obsession with the true crime genre. Because mm. I, understand, I understand on Labyrinth, you'll be talking about ethics in true crime in upcoming like season or miniseries. Yeah. So I, I would love to know, as somebody who kind of feels like I toe the line now, as you know, because I'm a professional criminologist, but 
yet I'm a, I'm a podcaster. So that's the true crime genre. And when, you know, we went to CrimeCon and I know you've, you've, um, I think you did virtual CrimeCon, right, Amanda? I very recently did their holiday thing talking about, um, yeah, <laughs> spending the holidays in prison. <laughs> so I'm curious how you, you know, so would you ever actually go to CrimeCon and present? How do you feel about this culture around almost romanticizing true crime? So that has been an issue that I've been tackling ever since I decided to get into journalism, basically, is realizing, first of all, that the media is a tool. It's not a good tool or a bad tool, just like the criminal justice system is a tool. It's not a good tool or a bad tool. It depends on how you're using it and what the rules are. And um, and I think that when it comes to the consumption and first of all, the interest in the consumption of these kinds of stories... Um, it's a little bit hard to relate to for me because I was never really a true crime person. Um, interestingly, Meredith was. I know that she liked to read um, mystery novels and detective novels, um, which is just so fucking horrible and sad. I'm sorry. Um, but ever since I started looking into, um, like, pro- first of all, processing how my own case was received was that sort of the larger story and the controversy being more interesting to people than the truth um, and how the worst experiences of people's lives are being turned into entertainment for others. Um, I started out um, doing like the Scarlet Letter reports and talking to other women who in different circumstances than mine were similarly vilified through their sexuality because that was like the first sort of moment where I was like, why was I being vilified through my sexuality? That's not fair. And then I moved on to doing a podcast called The Truth About True Crime, which was really, really its goal was to notice that the subjects who are these characters in morality plays that we continually tell ourselves over and over again, the they are real people who have their own agency and their own perspectives, and they are not limited to the tiny box of their experience that we have limited th- them to. And if anything, like one of the the ways that true crime has got it wrong is to suggest that anyone who is the subject of one of these true crime stories can't have an objective standpoint or or like viewpoint or that because we are outside of it, we are therefore objective. So I think that like an acknowledgement of the subjectivity of both the subject and the observer was important for me in the truth about true crime and also trying to give people a voice to the experience that they feel very much um, has come to define them, even though it's like the worst experience of their life that had like got completely out of their control. And that's a sort of similar vein that I've taken with labyrinths where I tackle issues like criminal justice all the time in this podcast. I can't help it. Like it all, I'm always interested in, and refer back to it. Um, a really interesting case that I did was um, interviewing a young woman named Samantha Geimer who is a sort of unconventional uh, rape survivor insofar as she really pushes back against the idea that rape survivors have to be pawns of the prosecution, that she wants like she knew what was going to give her justice in the end, and it was not what the criminal justice system was willing to offer her. And she very much resented the idea of being pushed 
to do things that would negatively further negatively impact her life for the sake of justice. And so like that, that is a really interesting take that I think is not really common and not really um, uplifted in the in the world of, you know, criminal justice reform, say. Um, another example of a great Labyrinths episode that I did about um, about criminal justice issues is one called One Bite of the Elephant at a Time. Did you guys listen to that I one? I did, yes. Yeah, it's intense. Yeah. It's an intense Very. one. Um, it's I think it's potentially the most challenging episode that I've done because it is through the perspective. Well, it's about very, very horrible crimes, crimes that are like are the crimes that we think are the worst crimes possible and viewed through the lens of the family members, the parents of a kid who was accused of this crime. And so what is the what is the impact not just on an individual but on a family when a young man is wrapped up in the criminal justice system because of an accusation of this very, very terrible crime? Um, and I think that that is a yet again another one of those perspectives on the criminal justice system that often gets overlooked is like it's not just – the person that's at the center of this true crime story that's impacted, it's everyone around them, everyone who's like who is feeling the weight of this tragedy and who feels like they don't have control over how it's impacting their lives. Yeah. Um, and that's yeah. what I really appreciate about the way you tell stories and the way, you know, Chris, can I call him Chris or is he Christopher? Chris is okay. fine, too. I act like that's I feel like that's like a nickname thing and we're not at that you know, stage. So. Um, but <laughs> no, no I, cool. I just always appreciate how something you always focus on. It's not just like good or bad. Like you don't have to be in these buckets. There's so much in between. And I think it's so important to look at, like, it's not just here's the good guy in the story. Here's the bad guy in the story. The victim isn't just the person who is the clear victim. As you said, there's all these other people that have been affected by something and just yeah. it's just so important to look at those stories as well. So I really appreciate that. Yeah. And if anything, like black and white narratives necessarily um, are at the expense of truth, mm -hmm. because I think that the truth always, always, always is exists in a gray space where different people have different perspectives of, of certain things and different incentives. And and, you know, we don't live in a world where uh, in a Disneyland world where there are villains and heroes and nothing in between. Mm -hmm. Like that's not the world we live in. And so when we portray the world in those terms, we're necessarily not actually depicting the yeah. truth. I want to know about your advocacy work. I know that you do a lot of journalism work, but you are also involved in the innocence movement. And I'm wondering how much of your energy is also spent on prison reform in general. And where do you think we should spend our energy on helping more people? Because I struggle with this as someone who works in a prison but does research on wrongful convictions. You know, once you meet people who are incarcerated, you think it doesn't matter if you're innocent or guilty. I want to help all of you. <laughs> so yeah, how do you yeah, reconcile yeah. that? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I feel like you do what you can. And um, if what you can do is have a, 
a broad perspective on like, you know, raising awareness of mass incarceration. Like that's a really big idea that touches a lot of people and yet doesn't really touch on any individual person. If that's the thing that really pushes your button, great. If the thing that pushes your button is your high school friend who's been in prison for forever, whether or not he did the crime and you want to do justice for that person, like that also matters. And so like, I I don't want like the way that I do, you know, advocacy work is I do what I can. Like (laughs) when someone asks me to help raise um, awareness of a case, I help raise awareness of a case. Like I I interview people, I analyze it, I talk to the person, I try to get the I try to get the story out there. If someone says, hey, we're doing a fundraiser for this local innocence project, do you want to come and help fundraise? Then, yeah, I'll go help do, you know, do the fundraiser. So like. Whatever you can do. And I think people can be surprised about like the many ways that you can help. Like a great example of this is there was an airline worker who like gave his miles to my family members so that it was cheaper for them to keep flying back and forth to Italy to see me. Like those are the kinds of things that like those human resources that really do make a difference in people's lives that you don't even think about. Like you don't think, oh, criminal justice reform, maybe I should give my my airline miles, but you can. And that would make a big difference to people, you know. (laughs) So like um, when it comes to my own work, I just try to do what I know I can do. And I do think of myself as a storyteller and a bridge builder. So a lot of my work has to do with my podcast Labyrinths and then the extra journalism work that I do on top of that. But I'm always happy to show up for a fundraiser or even just be on the phone with an exoneree who needs to get something off their chest. (laughs) Now, that's amazing that you're able to do that because I'm sure it's re-traumatizing for you as well to do that. I It does. So one, the thing that's both difficult and good about it is, yes, every time I talk about this, um, it does require me to relive the worst experience of my life in a certain way, but it's also a way of putting it in front of me. So instead of it feeling like it's on top of me, I'm putting it in front of me and I'm looking I'm always looking at it from new angles and and new perspectives. And that gives me a sense of agency over this terrible experience that once just took over my whole life and that I had no control over. Very well said. Thank you. Should we just end with what you are doing now and where you're going? Um, I am currently hosting and producing a podcast called Labyrinths with my husband, Christopher. It's so good. It's Um, so, so good. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Um, I'm working on a book um, which is is examining um, stories of real life stories that have been turned into entertainment um, and whether or not the people at the center of those stories were ever consulted in the process. And so that's um, a topic that I'm very interested in. Um, and then, of course, I've got a million other projects that are on the on the books. But those are the main ones that I'm really excited and can talk about, <laughs> plus being a yes. mom. And congratulations, by the way. Um, Thank you. I love listening to your journey. I felt like such a voyeur, but like it was, you know <laughs> what I mean? Like I felt like, uh, but it was TMI the podcast. It was TMI. No, but I love that's like totally me. I love it. And you know, congratulations. And I think it's really cool that you shared your experience and then you're kind of just like, all right, that door shut. And now that's it. Um, I think yep, that's, that's, that's really cool. Um, Amanda, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You are the most requested, um, guest we've gotten from all our listeners. So 
Oh, cool. All right. Well, thanks, listeners. That that was very different. I I learned so many things about Amanda, her insight, her, you know, her perspective, things that I've never heard before. And I know the case quite well. Yeah, I really learned a lot that I never learned from consuming all of the other documentaries and books. Hearing from Amanda really provided an insight that you can't get anywhere else. And as much as I thought I knew about this story, there's so much more to know about it. I, I think this was a unique opportunity. And we'd like to really thank Amanda for her time and and for you know being with us and our audience on Women in Crime. Thank you so much. And we'll catch you next time on Women in Crime. Women in Crime is written and hosted by Megan Sachs and Amy Schlossberg. Our producer and editor is James Varga. Music composition is by Dessert Media. If you enjoy the show, please remember to subscribe and leave a review. You can also support the show while gaining access to ad-free episodes, exclusive AMAs, and other bonus content for a small monthly contribution through Patreon. For more information, visit patreon.com slash womenincrime. the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.